You are listening to A Taste of Romumu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romumu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. In the Talmud, there's an argument about whether this book belongs in the Bible, you know, because people might go around singing it and thinking it's a love song, you know. And Akiva says, well, you know, the Bible is holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies, because the Song of Songs is the story of, of God's relationship to the people, right? But it's, it's veiled in this uh, story of lovers. Um, and so, you know, it gets snuck in, and it, and it has stayed. And that's actually how not only Jewish but Christian uh, tradition has interpreted the book, is that although it, it appears to be a book about human lovers, it's, you know, it's really a book about you know, the divine love story. I don't know if that was the original purpose of the Song of Songs. Um, it ha- bears a lot of relationship to Egyptian love poetry. Um, it bears a lot of relationship to the, um, the language in the ancient Near East around uh, kings and love um, before ancient Israel. Um, one of the rituals for anointing a king was um, was the night with the with the priestess. Um, this was actually a ritual that was performed in ancient Sumer and ancient Canaan. It may actually have been performed symbolically rather than actually. Like it's not clear that it was always performed with a real king and a real woman. Like sometimes it appears to have been enacted with statues and like not you know necessarily you know skin on skin. Um, and of course this gave rise to all kinds of anxiety about sacred prostitutes. But you know it. Probably in the cultures that this happened, it wasn't like a widespread thing. Like you could have a sacred, you know, sex worker hanging out on every corner. It was, it was, it was a particular thing that was done for kings. And by the way, it was done in ancient Ireland also. Mm-hmm. Like it actually went. This was a this was a widespread custom. Um, and what it represented was the priestess was the land, right? She represented the goddess and also the land. And the king's union with her meant his union with the land. Um, and some people think the Song of Songs has some relationship to that tradition because it talks about a king. Um, and the l- woman in the Song of Songs often calls her lover the king, even though he appears to just be a shepherd. So it's not clear whether he's the real king or whether he's just her king. Um, and I say this because we have to understand some of this background in order to enter the Kabbalistic material on the Shechina as lover. Uh, because if you don't, you know, have some sense of this background, it's hard to understand how they got where they got in the Kabbalah. Um, that there was this sense, um, really beginning with the ancient Near East, that sexuality was not only a prosaic matter, but was a sacred matter. And that the union of people in sexual relationship um, was at least potentially... Um, hi. Um, that's okay. Oh my gosh, we didn't do our altar thing, and I'm like already in the middle of my lecture. Um, I'm, I'm going to figure out how to work it in. Okay. Um, and the union of good nights. Thank you so much. Um, and that the and that and that the union of lovers represented the coming together of powerful forces, powerful cosmic forces. Uh, And there are places in the tradition where you see this. And we're going to really talk tonight about the way that the Shechina in the Kabbalah became one of the partners in what is called um, by by, uh, people who study myth, the sacred marriage. The sacred marriage is really any any sexual um, act or any symbol of sexual act that um, that happens in ritual right, that is meant to evoke cosmic union. Right, so uh, who saw um, Tom Hanks? Who saw? No. <laughs> no. No, no, um, Dan, Dram, Dan Brown. Oh, the Da Vinci Code. Okay, if you saw or read the Da Vinci Code, right, there's all kinds of stuff about sacred marriage in there. Right, it's um, right, it's a widespread Western uh, trope. Right, is the idea that the union, and usually the union of a man and a woman, although there's actually lots of homoerotic themes in the Kabbalah, also um, represents 
you know, represents some sort of sacred union of opposites. Okay. So that's where we're going tonight. And before we, um, before we go there, I'd love to pause just for us to go around and see. Uh, let's do names. I think we even have, um, I think we have good reason to do that. And um, if anybody wants to mention what they put on our, on our cloth or what they would put on our cloth tonight, please feel free to do that. You know, as I'm hearing you all talk, I'm remembering and realizing that there's a real tension in the Kabbalah around this whole issue of love and romantic love. Because on the one hand, there's a way that this whole notion of mystical love sort of frees you from the idea of the, you know, that you have to find your love in the, in the human realm, right? Because, you know, really, for, you know, in, in the understanding of many devotees, right, God is the lover, right, God is the beloved, and you might meet that beloved through people, but, you know, there is a, you know, the, the, the focus is on the, the human-divine relationship. And the Kabbalah had a lot to say about ways that being with a partner right, was a way of bringing the divine energy of union into the world. So that they understood, you know, from the Zohar on, it really starts in Sefer Habahir, which we started with a few weeks ago, where they um, begin to talk about the notion of, of the divine marriage, you know, which was new and different and, you know, weird, you know, from the perspective of previous images of God in Jewish tradition. Um, but by the time you get to the Zohar, there really begins to be this sense that God requires marriage within God's self. That there are elements within God that are separate, that require to be brought together in order for the world to be whole. And that humans coming together, right, or humans enacting wholeness in other ways, are helping to facilitate this divine union. Um, so that... Shekhinah, right, Machut, the tenth of the Sfirot, right, the, the most embodied of the Sfirot, has, from the beginning of time, you know, when the, when the first, uh, you know, when the first uh, exile occurred, you know, the first moment of exile occurred from the Garden of Eden, you know, been separate in some way from the rest of the Sfirot, from the Divine Masculine, right, and um, from the Transcendent, and that the metaphor that the Zohar uses for this is that she is, she's been divorced, she's been abandoned, she has been, you know, she has left, you know, her heavenly spouse. And what happens on Shabbat, what happens on Yom Kippur, what happens when uh, husbands and wives are together, you know, according to the Zohar, is the reunion of those parts of God that have been separated. So that is one aspect of how the Shekhinah, you know, plays the role of lover and often specifically the role of bride. Tonight I think we'll look a little bit at l'chadodi, right? When we say l'chadodi and we turn around to the back of the room, right, and, you know, we're reciting this medieval poem about, you know, um, actually, let's, let's look at it. Let's look at it. It's here. Page 49 and 50 of your packet. So this is actual liturgy. Like, this is actual, um, you know, this is not just, you know, esoteric stuff for, you know, people who are interested in it, right? This is what, you know, Jews, you know, in Ashkenazi traditions around the world um, recite as Shabbat is beginning. And so, you know, some of you are accustomed to hearing this poem in, in a, you know, in liturgical contexts. So... What's it about? What have you always thought L'chadudi was about? What do you feel when you say it or hear it? Okay, so there's a rebirth theme, right? It mentions the exile and the, you know, and the city sad and, right, she's abandoned and then God returns to her. So there's a rebirth theme, okay? What else is in it? Think of welcoming the Sabbath bride. Okay. So I think of as we are welcoming Shabbat, we're welcoming um, the beauty and the right. sacredness of what a bride brings, and so it's a holy, uh, you know, moment. Right. 
entering. Like the divine energy, like welcoming right. the divine energy in and separating out from the weak mm. and the tension of the weak, the mundane, and then entering into this holy time period of Shabbat. I also feel the opening of heart mm -hmm. and love. And the idea for this poem really starts in the Talmud, where the Talmud talks about people going out into the fields and saying, welcoming Shabbat by saying, come, O bride. It doesn't really say why. Like, why call Shabbat a bride? Like, that's really not in the Talmud, except, you know, to relate to what, uh, what, what Karen said and what Jamie said, that it has something to do with this idea of the, of the holiness of the Shabbat. The Shabbat is, you know, is like the way that you get up to honor a bride who walks into the room in a traditional wedding setting, right? It's like the same idea that you honor the Shabbat as it enters. But the Kabbalists took this in an even more um, explicit direction, right? For the Kabbalists, when the Shabbat bride is entering, the Shekhinah is coming to the room, and what is she there to do? Right, who's the Dodi, right? In, 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 the, right, in the poem, the Dodi are the companions, right? But the Dodi, the beloved, right? Who's the beloved? God, right? The Kaddosh Baruch Hu is there, right, standing at the, uh, right, standing on the, on the bima to meet the bride. And we're all there witnessing this um, coming together, right, which represents that on Shabbat, what's broken is made whole, right? The bridegroom and the bride are no longer separate, right? They're, they're together. And this is why it says in the Zohar, Right, the scholars, the people who know things, right, the people who are aware of these matters, right, Friday night is the night when you make love. Right, why? Because that's the night that God and the Shekhinah are making love. Right. So, um, so they're actually adding a layer. It's not just saying there's a divine groom and a divine bride, right, that in some way represents the, you know, the, the, the opposites that unite. They're saying, well, also for us that's true. Right? It's also true in the human realm that we can embody those opposites and we can, you know, and through our actions we can also bring them together. Now, I don't actually know how much the Kabbalists discuss this with their wives or other lovers that they may have had. Like, I don't actually know about that. Um, I don't know if they, you know, talk to their wives about the idea that, you know, they represented the Shekhinah. I, I don't know. Maybe they did, but, it, you know, they don't say, so I don't know. I mean, it could be that this was, you know, a beautiful, you know, um, uh, you know, imagine, you know, a beautiful imaginative, uh, you know, uh, enhancement to their lovemaking, or it could be that, you know, the Kabbalists are thinking about that, and meanwhile they're not really, you know, paying that much attention to the to the reality. But I, I, it could have been different from person to person. I have no idea. Sure. But I just find it interesting that they that they saw this link between people and and uh, and God. Um, and, you know, and God as split couple that needs to be united. So if you look at L'chad Dodi, all right, this is my translation, which is a little bit, a little bit free, but Shemor V'zachor B'dibor Echad, right, that God, right, that there are two versions of the Shabbat commandment and the Ten Commandments. One says Shemor, keep. One says Zachor, remember. The Midrash is God said them both at the same time. But in the Zohar, Shemor is the Shekhinah and Zohar is the, um, no, I think it's the other way around. Shemor is the, whole, is the masculine and Zohar is the feminine. Uh, so, they, um, so they're actually already hinting at the divine wedding here. Um, and uh, cause us to hear them as one, right? Uh, God is one, God's name is one, right? Um, and when, when the Zohar says God's name is one, the Zohar means that in God's name, the Shekhinah and the Kaddish Baruch are, are united, right? The yud -Hey and the vav -Hey, right, are the, right, are, are the uniting of the masculine and the feminine in God's name. And then Luria takes that in a, a new direction. Um, if you look down, uh, so Mikdash Melchir Mubuchaz about the, right, um, royal shrine in Regal City, right, the, um, the uh, temple, the holy city, right, arise from your darkness. Um, you've sat in the valley of tears for too long. God is going to have compassion on you. So here's the Kabbalistic question. Who or what is the holy shrine? Yes, and... 
right? Remember, buildings are always the Shechina, right? The, 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 the temple is the Shechina, okay? So when they say, oh, city, oh, temple, you've mourned too long, right, they're actually all, they're talking to the people because one of the names of the Shechina is Knesset Yisrael, is the community of Israel. So we are also an embodiment of the Shechina. Um, the, um, but the Mikdash, Melech, right, the, 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 the shrine of the king, that is the Shechina in her role as the bride of the king, right? So when you hear temple, you also have to hear the bride. Um, so take a look on page 50. I'm going to jump down a little bit. And it doesn't mean that they're not also talking about the city. They are, but there's, there's layers under here. Um, he tore, he tore, awaken, awaken, right, arise, um, that your light has come. Um, and again, in the next verse, um, the city will be built on her hill, right, that also is the, right, it's the city, it's Jerusalem, it's the people, it's the Shechina. And then the line that's most relevant, right, right, God is going to rejoice in you as a bridegroom rejoices in a bride. So here the people and the Shechina are being identified together, and then and the Shabbat and the Torah all goes in the same basket, and God is the bridegroom of all that. Right? Um, it's, it's a quote. It's, he's weaving all kinds of quotes from the Bible together. Right? That has to do with, like, the people are returning to the city. It's the time of the Messiah. Right? Everyone is, um, you know, bursting out in dance. Um, and through the hand of the Ish Ben Partsi, the, the man, the son of Peretz, that's the Messiah, right? Peretz is the, is the ancestor of the house of David. So the, um, the son of Peretz is the Mashiach. So in other words, in the Messianic uh, world, right, everybody will be redeemed. Um, and finally, right, come in peace. Um, uh, it's in the, in the traditional version, it's a Teret Ba'ala, crown of your husband. <clears throat> of her husband. <coughs> Enjoy in uh, rejoicing amid your faithful people, your treasured people. Right, come, O bride. So, um, so they're layering the the original understanding of the people as God's bride with the understanding of the Shekhinah as God's bride, right? They're reading both those things together. So that's what you're singing. You're singing, you're having the sacred wedding. <clears throat> you thought it only happened in secret Magdalene cults, but no, it happens in shul. <laughs> what, what exactly, I'm embarrassed to ask this question because I sing it every week and I have no idea what I'm saying. What exactly does Great. Thank you. Lechadodi. it's not translated and I never know what I was saying. Great question. Lecha, to like Abraham, to go forth. Lecha dodi, go forth, my beloved. Or my friend, my beloved. Likrat is to welcome Kala, the bride. So come, beloved, or go, beloved, to welcome the bride. Penei Shabbat, face of Shabbat, the face of Shabbat, Nikabela. Let's, let's welcome her, let's receive her together. Um, so that's what it means, Lecha dodi. Uh, so we're saying to one another, "Come, beloved, let's go. Look at, let's go out to the field to greet the Shabbat who's coming." But also, Dodi is the divine masculine, right? My, uh, right? It's like David, right? Dodi, right? My beloved, um, to greet the bride. So the the people are also bringing, right, the bride and the bridegroom together. It's like at a wedding, right? So when you do lecha Dodi, it's a little wedding in the middle of the service, right? And then everybody turns to bow to the bride. And then you turn back to the center, meaning the bride has now entered, right? And, uh, you know, the focus returns to the front of the shul. Um, and, you know, some people understand this, you know, dyadically. Some people understand this alchemically, that this has to do with the marriage of pieces of the self. Right? Just as, right, God is one and yet all this marriage stuff is still occurring within God, right, that... There are different pieces of us that need to be united, and that you know, and that this wedding is a way of talking about the ways that we bring the different parts of ourselves together. Um, so, 
Yes. In the fields yes. towards Jerusalem because Jerusalem had been destroyed right. and the temple was. The custom was originally mentioned in the Talmud, but it was the Kabbalists of Sfat who made it live. They would go out to the field to welcome Shabbat. That's how Kabbalat Shabbat started. There was no Kabbalat Shabbat until the Kabbalists of Sfat. Uh, one of Luria's contemporaries, Alkabetz, wrote this poem uh, for that occasion. Um, and right, Jerusalem was the place where the Shekhinah had gone into exile with the people and where the temple would be rebuilt, meaning that the, the divine marriage would have happened and that the union wouldn't, you know, the, the exile would no longer be in effect. Right, the union of of the broken that. Right. <clears throat> so this was designed purposely in terms of completing something which had been destroyed, and now Scott was in fact the new center temporarily, but you know that's how they would engage right. the Shekhinah coming in in the hope that ultimately the temple would be rebuilt in Yerushalayim. Sure, though for them the temple was a cosmic temple, so I don't understand, I don't know how they understood the rebuilding of the temple. I'm sure they meant it literally, but they may also have meant it in many other ways that were not literal. Um, they, the Kabbalists of Spain and then later of Sfat, really understood themselves as having the power to heal, right? having the power to heal the world. They didn't really mean that in the way that we often use tikkun olam today, right? Let's be activists, let's go out, let's fix what's wrong. They didn't really quite mean it that way. They meant that by doing the acts that they could do, by observing mitzvot and by, you know, doing acts with chesed and, and by, you know, doing, you know, Kabbalistic practice, that they were in some way healing the invisible brokenness of the world. And when that was healed, the world would, you know, automatically, you know, turn into what it was supposed to be. So they were cosmic activists, right? Not necessarily in the sense of they felt that they personally could fix the brokenness, but that together we had the potential to fix this. But they, they also had a very, um, they believed in reincarnation. They believed, like, they had a, they had a very um, interconnected view of things, right? That all little actions mattered. You know, like you could be, you know, nice to a, you know, a frog because it might be some Rebbe who was working off a sin, you know, like they, um, you know, they, they really, you know, they, they thought those things, you know. Uh, Isaac Luria would tell you your past lives and what you needed to do to repent for all the sins you committed, you know. Um, they, uh, they, they really saw the cosmic drama as being very big, but that we had a part in it, you know, we had a part that we were able to, able to play. Well, they lived like Jews. I mean, they lived like Orthodox Jews. So, like, you know, but they meditated, they chanted, they, you know, had sacred sex. At least that was how they understood what they were doing. They, they did stuff that they had special kavanot that they would recite before prayers and mitzvot to facilitate the union of the Shekhinah with the Holy One of Blessing. They had stuff that represented their belief system. But they lived like, you know, they, they lived in Jewish communities. You know, they weren't their own thing. They, uh... You hear today people saying, oh, Kabbalah isn't really about being Jewish, it's really its own, you know, you, you hear this in, you know, certain places, and this is just not, this is Narishkeit, this is nonsense. Like, it, they function within a Jewish environment, but they had a whole layer that they had added to that, you know, that was okay, different. Do you think it informed their, you know, like you said, they didn't have the same understanding of Tikkun Olam, You know, it's, it's a good question, and I'm sure it did, but what we should understand is the people who made Jewish law for us were Kabbalists. Like, it's not like, like, you know, we have Jewish law and they did something else. Like, Joseph Caro, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, who was the single most important Jewish legalist, talked to the Shechina. He wrote about her. He had a Magid. He had an angelic... <clears throat> Sorry, everybody. My, my lungs are still not working that well. <clears throat> he had... Um, he had an angelic spirit that he did dialogue with. Like, we shouldn't think that the legalists and the Kabbalists were two different groups of people. They were the same group of people. 
you know, like, I mean, there were these splits, like, in between the Hasidim and the, and the, and the Litvaks, you know, at certain periods of time. But we shouldn't imagine that, you know, this was like some isolated group of people. There's a reason why we think that. There were Jewish scholars earlier in the generation, we have to get back to the lover, um, uh, but who, who treated mystics as this sort of weird, rare thing, because they couldn't believe that this was normative Judaism. But the fact, because they were rationalists from, you know, the school of Leo Beck, and they just couldn't believe that this was normal. But it was normal. Like, all, the, all Jews were Kabbalists until 150 years ago. You know, from the time of the Zohar until, you know, 150 years ago, all Jews were Kabbalists. If they, if they lived in lands that were touched by Kabbalah. Um, all right, I want you to look on page 52. Yeah, I'm actually looking for this. Oy. Okay. Um, who is willing to read the first quote on page 52? This might be in the second packet. If it is, people should just listen. Well, Jane's got it. And Judy, you can go next. Just the first paragraph? Yes. That night, the Sabbath, is the joy of the queen and the king, and they're uniting. Therefore, a person must prepare his table on the Sabbath night so that blessings from above will dwell on him. Scholars who know this secret meet only on Friday night. Mm. <laughs> Zohar 2, Yes, so that's in the Zohar. Wow, only? Only. <laughs> that's the word that... Well, you know. At least they know it's once a week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At least. <laughs> Jill, is there yeah. a particular blessing before having sex? There is not. There is no blessing before having sex. Presumably, they thought one couldn't have appropriate kavanah um, in the you know in the moment. But uh, there are kavanot. The Kabbalists did. In fact, uh, there's a scene in a play called The Maid of Ludomir where the uh, maid of Ludomir is telling her husband to recite the covenant to the proper intentions before, before having sex. Um, they, did, they did write such things, um, but I don't. The most basic covenant for any mitzvah is l'shem yichud kudsha brichu u'shechinte, for the sake of the unification of the Holy One of Blessing and the Shechina. That works for everything. And then they also wrote you know, more specific ones for, uh, for different moments. Um, Okay, so that's, that's the one I was telling you about. Now, the second one is not about Shabbat, it's about the Shavuot. How many people here have ever participated in the Tikkun Leil Shavuot and the custom of staying up all night on Shavuot? Um, does that mean you stayed up all night? Well, even if you didn't stay up all night. You, 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 you went to the, you went to the We're thing. We're not always successful. Okay. So, so the Leil Tikkun is called the Leil Tikkun because it, the, the custom comes from the Zohar. A Leil Tikkun means a night fixing. That's what it means, Leil Tikkun, night fixing. So this is the story about the Leil Tikkun, is the second quote here. Judy, you want to take it? Sure. Great. Rav Shimon was sitting and studying the Torah during the night when the bride was to be joined to her husband. But we have been taught that all the members of the bridal palace during the night preceding <clears throat> the Shekhinah's espousals are in, are in duty bound to rejoice with her in her final preparation for the great day. To study all branches of the Torah. I, I did that that night. I was, I was, I was. Yeah. These represent her adornment. The bride with her bridesmaids come up and remain with them, adorning herself at their hands and rejoicing with them all that night. And on the following day, she enters the chuppah in their company. Okay. So you said you studied the no, night before? No, I didn't. Oh, the night before your wedding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the night when the bride is to be joined to her husband. Guys, I went to the mikvah and then I went to Slichot. It was the night before Slichot, and I was like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> It was, uh, well, anyway. <laughs> I did not paint my nails. I don't actually know how to paint my nails. <laughs> oh, okay. 
So Rabbi Shimon is uh, studying the Torah, and they're studying Torah during the night when the bride is to be joined with her husband. So what night is that? Friday night. The night before, you're saying Shavuot. It's Shavuot. Because at Sinai is considered to be the great wedding, right? Because the, right, the Torah is given to the people. So Sinai is the great wedding, right? It's the wedding between the people and God. And the members of the bridal palace have to rejoice with the Shekhinah while she's waiting for her wedding in the morning. So in other words, this is, this is great. It's very gender-bending. This, this is very queer. So the Torah scholars are the bridesmaids. Okay, and while they're studying Torah, they're imagining that what they're doing is hanging out with the bride and braiding her hair and putting on her jewelry, except the jewelry is all the new uh, ideas that they're having, right? All the new interpretations that they're making. Like every time they have a new interpretation, that's jewelry for the Shekhinah. When do they eat the cheesecake? <laughs> when the bride gets hungry, I guess. And the bride comes to the bridesmaids, and she hangs out with them, and she lets them put on all the jewelry, and, uh, and then she walks to the chuppah with them. So they are imagining on the night of Shavuot, and with all this studying, that they're bridesmaids for the Shekhinah. Right? Is there they're... any element of evoking the feminine in themselves during this process? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, don't know that, I don't know if they would mean that the way that you're offering it, Judith, but... They're definitely rolling themselves as women here because they're identifying as Knesset Israel, as the Jewish people, and we're identified with the Shechina. So they're sort of plugging into her universe, you know, to, into her realm. Um, what that meant to them in terms of their own feminine side, I don't know that they thought about it exactly that way. But, you know, certainly they're taking on a feminine role and saying, when I'm studying Torah, you know, I'm really making adornments for the Shechina. Um, so they're sort of fantasizing about being women, you know, which is interesting. Yeah. You know what that meant to them. I don't know. Especially when they're saying a prayer of thanking God that they're not women at the beginning of the day. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's it's true. Um, and but um, they also I mean, the, the Kabbalists are very, I mean, they're, they're ambivalent about women, right? I mean, you know, welcome to the Western Civilization Club. You know, they're, they're ambivalent about women. Like, on the one hand, they talk a lot about women. They talk a lot about the feminine. They say, you know, a man has to have a wife. He has to be in connection to the feminine all the time. If he goes on a journey, he has to make sure the Shekhinah is with him because he isn't with his wife, so he has to be with the Shekhinah. Um, so they're constantly talking about women and the feminine. Um, and yet, you know, they're living in this little, you know, club of, of, you know, male scholars. And those connections are very intimate, right? When you study with people, that's very intimate. So there's, you know, there's a male-male connection going on that's very strong. And then there's this sort of theoretical feminine that's involved. Uh, so, you know, you guys can think what, you know, what you think about that. But it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of emotional intimacy that these are men who are bonding very strongly together, and they're sort of imagining that it's like being girlfriends, you know, but, you know, it's a, and, and there's a bride there, but, you know, the bride is theoretical, right, and they're real men, so it's, you know, it's very, it's all very convoluted and kind of interesting. Yeah, is, there, is there any writing about that? Is sure. That about, the, about, like, what it was like? I'm just curious. We don't really know what it was like for them. They didn't write about it. But, you know, there's lots and lots of writing about the Kabbalah, you know, and about theories about who these guys were and what they did with their lives. So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of stuff to read. Most of it is speculative, but, yeah. Mm -hmm. That actually makes a lot of sense to me, that, yeah. that study feels feminine and mm -hmm. it feels intimate. Yeah. It feels, um, and that if the bride is the coming together of... Um, or welcoming new ideas and teaching, and you know that makes sense to me that that maybe the men had to see that engagement of study as a feminine aspect of themselves. Mm -hmm. that, that makes a lot of sense. That, that it allows them to open up their heart. It allows mm -hmm. them to open mm -hmm. up their mind. It allows them to be receivers, and it allows them maybe to go to a place that they don't go to in other places in their life. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. A lot of them, they they went to the school and then they traveled and they lived with you know at, at the yeshiva or whatever they called it at the time, and so they were away from their wives for periods of long periods of time. I understand. I know there's some stuff about 
supposed to come at least once a year. I, I don't know to go home to the. There's yeah. stuff about how frequently, but those are other stories. And yeah, they're well, not related to FEMA particularly, but it's more about, I would assume, relationships. Well, in the Talmud, there's a lot of stories about men going away, you know, and then not coming back to their wives except rarely. I don't, in Provence, I don't know how many of these men were actually away from their families. I'm sure some of them were. Um, but they actually may have been going home to their families at night. How intimate they were with their families, I don't know. You know, how, how involved they were in the lives of their wives and children, I, I really don't know. Um, but, I, but the way that they talk, actually, the, the uh, Kabbalists are actually not fond of people who leave their families. The Kabbalists actually think that you have to be with your wife on Shabbat. Like, they, 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 they actually thought that that was important. So they're not actually big fans of taking off and, you know, and leaving for a year the way that some of the Talmudic sages were. Yeah. When did Moshe Rabbeinu break the uh, Ten Commandments? You, you mean when is in what time of year? What, when is in... We, we got for... Um, we got the Torah now, mm. right? On Shavuot? On Shavuot, but this, he broke them prior to... Nope. 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 After. First we got the, we got the Ten Commandments. Then he brought, went up, up. Then he came back down. I think it's on, might be on Tisha B'Av, actually, but I'm not sure about that. But we, the new ones come down on Yom Kippur. That's the, that's the tradition. I cannot remember when the broken ones get broken. Shavuot is the original Correct. Yeah. And was the Shekhinah and the Ten Commandments? Or did, uh, you mean the brokenness? Did, did well, Luria, the Zohar certainly would have seen the broken broken tablets as a manifestation in, in physical space of the exile of the Shekhinah. Like they would have understood that as, as a manifestation of the Shekhinah's exile, that the world is broken, the Shekhinah is separated from the Holy One of Blessing, <coughs> hence we have to do all this spiritual work. Like they would have under that's how they would have understood that. Yeah. So I want to look at the last quote. This one is actually a lot of fun. So here, the relationship between the scholar and the Torah is described as a love relationship. Um, and the Torah remembers also the Shekhinah. So when the Zohar says the Torah, they're really also talking about the Shekhinah as she manifests as a text. She manifests as a day, she manifests as a bride, you know, she manifests as a text. Um, who hasn't read who would like to read? Yeah, thank you. The Torah? Yes, please. The Torah discloses her innermost secrets only to them who love her. She knows that the only, that, that the one who is wise in heart hovers near the gates of the dwelling place day after day. What does she do? From her palace, she shows her face to him and gives him a signal of love and forthwith retreats back to her hiding place. Only he alone catches her message, and he is drawn to her with his whole heart and soul and all of his being. And when he arrives, she commences to speak with him, at first from behind the veil, but she has hung before the, before the word. When finally he is on her, excuse me, when finally he is on near terms with her, she stands disclosed face to face with him, and holds converse with him concerning all of her secret mysteries and all the secret ways that have been hidden in her heart from immemorial time. Mm. Yeah. It really is beautiful. And it really, it's, it's, a, it's a very intimate vision of what it means to study Torah. Mm. Right? That you begin and you, ha you only have these hints. Like, oh, I feel like there's something important here, but I don't really get it yet. You know, but I... Feel, I feel something. I feel some connection. I want to pursue it. And she is uh, sort of enticing, right, the, the, uh, the one who is seeking, right, and, and inviting. And, uh, general, yeah. Is Torah as feminine a general understanding? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would say the Kabbalists take that more seriously than... You see it a little bit in the Talmud, but really it's mostly that the Torah is grammatically feminine. Um, but, 
you know, and sometimes is described, you know, in more feminine terms, but in the in the Zohar, no, the femininity is is quite pronounced. Yes, I mean, because she's identified with Hashlina. Um, so she gets to be a, a person, you know. Um, it's really funny, you know, my, my, uh, my teachers in Jewish law inveigh against that custom. They say there's absolutely no source for it. Like, nobody can figure out why anybody thinks this is okay. Um, the cl- <laughs> no, the Torah. The, uh, the, um, and yet, and yet, this is a very common belief and a very common practice that people will use a Torah as, as the 10th person if they really need a minion. Um, even though there's, it's, it's one of those folk practices that the rabbis just can't get rid of. It's like something that like, just arose because of a community need. And um, you know, the actual source in the halakha says you can use a boy, I mean a child, but you know, in the halakha sources, a, 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 like a, a holding a chumash. You can count as a tenth person if you really need to. Um, but there's nothing about a safer Torah, but that's, uh, but that's how people, that's what people do. Oh yeah, they don't. They don't. They're not taking their femininity that seriously. No, no. Um, um, no. So. Well, it's very interesting because actually, right? The um, I mean, it's interesting. Usually in our sidurim, right? The the verbs and nouns around the Torah tra- and pronouns around the Torah translate as it, right? It is a tree of life, right? The Hebrew is she. Now, there's good reason for translating it as it. I mean, Hebrew calls things he that are it also. You know, a table is he, right? A rug is she. You know, there's no, it's like other languages in which there's no gender-neutral pronoun. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me, right, that right, we make that choice. So this she means it, but, the, but, you know, when we call God he, that's he, not it. Right? So how do we make those, right, how do we make those choices around... Language, right? How do we decide? Well, what, which gendered pronouns are really not gendered, and which ones really are gendered? You know, how do we, how do we think about that? You know, when is it important to us, and when is it not important to us? Um, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, at a, you know, in lots of liberal synagogues now, it's, a, it's customary in English, right, to avoid the whole gender pronoun thing. You know? It's customary to to write the English translation in such a way that you avoid. The gender pronoun issue, right? So that um, you say, you know, God brings the evening instead of He brings the evening. So that you know, you you uh, you know, you 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 use a gender neutral way of uh, speaking, you know, which I think is is a good solution, you know. And there's a, for me, there's a way that I miss some of the richness of the Hebrew and the and the and the multiplicity of the of the pronouns, you know, where God is a, you know. A, a, um, a a king and God is a, a bride and you know I kind of I kind of like that stuff but um, anyway I think it's an interesting question to think about how do we how do we translate okay what else do I want to say about lovers divine divine lovers so um, let's see what time is it eight oh eight all right so. So what I think I want to say about all this, so this is all very, um, I mean, we're all sitting here talking about it very politely, but this is all very edgy stuff. You know, the idea that God is involved in Eros, you know, in, in any real way, like, what does that mean? You know, um, at, at Romamu, where a lot of us are members and, and others of us have, you know, been in context like this, um, Rabbi David will read a poem by Rumi, you know, that talks about the lover and the beloved, right? Now, Rumi really meant that. You know, he had a very passionate relationship with God. He also had a very passionate relationship with his male teacher, Shams. Um, So often, Shams is the beloved and God is the beloved. Um, And so so that, those poems, those Sufi poems, right, from the Muslim mystic tradition, 
are in the tradition of understanding God as the lover, right? God is the, as the one who is intimately and erotically involved with you. Um, but, you know, that's not language that we generally use, right, because it's, it's very private, it's very intimate. Um, so I'm curious if we could have a little conversation about what that means to us. Like, is that, does that feel real? Does that feel poetic? Does that feel strange? You know, why, you know, what is, you know, when you say l'chadodi, right, which in some way is an, an invitation to the, between the lover and the beloved, like, you know, how, do we, how are we supposed to feel in that moment? You know, what's, you know, what's the invitation, you know, when we use this language? That's my please, Judy. Well, I always thought that, I, well, I, and I can still remember, you know, when I was passionate about somebody like her, that's all I could think about. And, and I did, you know, inappropriate things and, you know, really made, made big mistakes and didn't, you know, and said I wouldn't and kept on doing these things. That it was a kind of uh, taking over, it's like beyond thinking or thinking really just interferes with it or you can't. So I thought that if they used that metaphor for this relationship that we're supposed to have with God, it's probably the only thing that I could think of that I was pa that passionate about at any time. That that's what I was supposed, how I was supposed to feel, so that God would be so important that I would forsake all others. Mm. Mm. That's that's how I always felt about it mm. because I have mm. done some studies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Judy. That was vulnerable and fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> well, the devil is in the deep. Wow. for me was always very intimate. Hmm. Um, like there's a difference when singing Lachadodi um, in a small gathering as opposed to a large congregation, for me it's a totally different thing. Um, kind of difficult for me to get into, um, because, okay, I'm backtracking. Okay, I got way ahead of myself. Um, in Israel there was um, a family that we would always do Shabbat with, and he is Yemenite, so he would sing L'chadodi, that would just break your heart wide open. So this was the lachadodi that I learned to love mm -hmm. and and enjoy. And then um, then Romamu, and then you know then it's an it, it's a group lachadodi, which is like oh like this is totally different. Mm -hmm. um, and it took a while for that to settle um, because you get used to you know things being a specific way. Mm. And so for me, Lachadodi is always um, very romantic and mm. very like old um, way things used to be um, living in a, in a small village in Israel, you know, and on Shabbat was mm. Shabbat. So mm. that's where I come from. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Please, Jay. Here just now, as you were talking, I realized that when I think of or pray on Shabbat, I do think of it personally as being emotional in, in the romantic sense, in the loving sense, but not in the erotic sense. Mm -hmm. it, it just never occurred to me to mm -hmm. think of my erotic dynamic with the divine, mm -hmm. but it has occurred to me now, so I would like to explore it somewhat. I just, me and the yeah. divine erotic. Haven't looked there. Oh. You're gonna be there. You might be getting a phone call. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Wow. Well, and I think of God being everywhere. Mm. Then it makes sense. Why not? You know, sex thrive as well. Mm. You know, I'm thinking about what Judy said and about the ways that the mystics, the mystics, us, you know, the people who prayed, people who have, were connected to God. You know, that, that there really was this sense of mystery and heat and confusion and overwhelm, you know, that, that, there, you know, that, that there can be these feelings in, in the spiritual realm. 
um, you know, in ways that echo, at least, or you know, are similar to the ways that we feel when we fall in love. Um, and you know, and this is hard to like, as with love, this is hard to explain to somebody who hasn't felt it. You know, like it's uh, like what you did, what, why, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, go and try to explain something like this to uh, to anybody. Um, Right. <laughs> Why did I just do that? Um, but there's, um, you know, there's something about about opening to that that is, you know, that is really very powerful and is a kind of antidote. Even thinking about the possibility of it is a kind of antidote to, you know, the way that prayer can be almost a study of prayer. You know, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to understand this word, and now I'm looking at this word, and now, you know, the rabbi is telling me to turn the page. You know, and and there is, even if you're not bored, and often people are bored, but even if you're not bored, you know, you may not necessarily be as deeply engaged as you would like. And, you know, to, to, to imagine then, so the beloved wants to talk to me, right? The beloved wants to reach me. The beloved desires my, my company. You know, that's a very different way of thinking about what am I doing here when I'm praying? You know, why am I doing this? Um, you know, if you think about, like, I'm here to, you know, I'm here to be in relationship with the, you know, with the beloved, you know, with the lover. Um, you know, that's, you know, that has been for me, you know, a powerful thing to think about. I remember once I'd, I'd come home from, uh, from uh, Israel, from my rabbinic year in Israel. Um, I had just left my husband. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. You know, I just sort of, you know, left the only life that I had, you know. I was spending Passover with friends and... You know how it is when you're spending a lot of time with people you don't normally spend a lot of time with, and they're fabulous. And all of a sudden, you're like, "I need to take a walk." You know, like, <laughs> like, like this is too. This dynamic is too unfamiliar. Um, and I went walking. They were on the uh, Upper East Side, and I went walking in the conservatory garden. And it was the 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 apple and cherry blossoms had just popped. And you know, I was, and I was well aware that the the you know the Song of Songs talks a lot about the you know the the under the apple tree and the apple orchards and um, you know the, the apple orchards is a place for love and the Zohar also calls the Shechina the apple orchard. So I'm walking around the apple orchard and I'm feeling you know I'm having a moment of spiritual um, intimacy and and I'm like <laughs> you know like I really have this feeling of oh my goodness I really you know. God is here. Like I feel, I'm, I feel it. I got it. Like here it is. And I, wow, you know. And I, uh, and you know. And then I went home and had multiple soup. <laughs> you know. But there was just this moment of, oh, it's really in me. Like I, my my body is aware of this oceanic connection to the divine. Wow. Oh. Um, I don't feel that every time I go to shul. You know. But the idea that one could feel that. You know, is you know, is a is a go to my spiritual practice. Um, so I think that's part of why I like this, you know, this mm -hmm. piece. You know, and I, I'm sort of aware of my embarrassment in sharing this with you. You know, one of the reasons that we don't talk about this is that you know we're just, you know, we just don't talk about our intimate lives that way. You know, and also with our relationship with God, like the parts that are most intimate are the most hard to talk about. But I think it's good to to out ourselves about it a little bit because otherwise that we never know that somebody else might be feeling that or wanting to feel that or you know I think it's uh, it's good to you know, good to be in conversation about it um, Karen and then Jamie um, the work to lose myself mm. that you know I don't think of mm. when Jamie's talking I don't think of God in a physical erotic mm. um, relationship but I do feel that when I am most intimate with God, that I do, I can lose myself. Mm -hmm. And that there are times in Lahadodi, in the shul, where I feel that there's a sense of losing oneself. People lose their boundaries, they lose their, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. distance, they lose their duality. Sometimes there's that sense, sometimes mm -hmm. there's that sense that we've lost ourselves. Yeah. And to me, when I feel most connected with the divine, there's this sense of joining in a way that I'm losing myself, and my connection is fluid. And that, mm. Mm. I guess that to me would be this intimacy that we're talking about. Mm. That's beautiful, Karen. Huh? 
I, I study, I, uh, what do you, Qigong? Mm -hmm. um, and there's something called bringing in the morning sun. Mm -hmm. And I always think about that when I'm, when we turn around and we face the door. Mm -hmm. And and that's mm -hmm. sort of my break from the week is that I bring in the divine energy and I, I raise my hands up mm -hmm. and I enter into my crown and I bring the mm -hmm. energy in all the way down and, you know, into mm -hmm. my physical being. And that is that intimate connection mm. with that energy, you know? So, mm. you know, I, that's, that's what it reminds mm. me. Mm. Thank you, Jamie. That's lovely. I want to say one more thing before we close with meditation, but I want to say that this, this doesn't only hold if you think of God as personal. Right, because if there may be people who are thinking, well, I don't really think of God as a personal being who, who has you know a relationship with me, so this you know doesn't really work for me. But I have known people for whom you know God is not necessarily personal, but who are aware of the erotics of just being alive, right? Of just being in contact with the universe, um, and of you know making yourself awake, right, to the sensations and the feelings and the and you know and the experiences of being alive, and there's. You know, there's a way of greeting the universe as a beloved, right? There's a way of, you know, walking into any room, any situation, any place and saying, oh, this is what's real, and I'm going to embrace this as much as I possibly can, right? And I think that there's a way that that also partakes of the Shekhinah as lover, right? That the Kabbalists understood one body of the Shekhinah was what is, right? They saw her as the embodiment of the physical world. So that meant that the Shekhinah is what there is. Right? And when you say the Shekhinah is the bride, you know, one meaning that that has right, is that right, I'm here in this world, the world is the bride, the world is inviting my deep intimacy with it, with her, with him. Right? And I, you know, I can choose to take the opportunity to be as aware, as intimate, as in relationship you know, with my life, with the, what's present as I can. Um, so I find that also to be a really powerful meditation on the Chadodi is how can I be in love with what is, right? How can I be, right? How can I be married to my real life, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm reading right now one of the books of Conversations with God. And there's several. I've read maybe two of them. And you know, the, the, the discussion is about the desire of God to have relationship, mm -hmm. and that the reason that the universe, that, that the, everything was created, the physicalness of it, was so that God could experience God's self. So it's all in relationship, and it's all, you know, that. So that's by nature physical and erotic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's just I'm, li I'm listening to all the parallels again. I'm reading all these books, and I'm listening to the parallels. Of the, you know, Right. Thank you. Please. It's a quick one. <clears throat> I, not so, it didn't, not so much sure what was never a problem for me is being when I, when I was out in nature and I could watch, I could observe a butterfly for 40 minutes straight, going from flower to flower and ducking his proboscis into the nectar and sucking it out. And it's almost an ecstatic, ex ecstatic for me. Mm -hmm. So in nature, so mm -hmm. I think when I first started going to Rome, I was trying to try to create a different experience mm -hmm. for myself in this setting, which was not the setting I was most comfortable in. Mm -hmm. But that has evolved. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm with the butterfly. Like that's just that's so fabulous. Yeah, I, I just mm. it's it's amazing. Mm. And 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 but but Romo has opened up my heart in a way that, and I I don't question it. So like I'm experiencing, often ecstasy. But I I, thank God I've stopped asking mm -hmm. you know, what this is. Explain this or why is this? I just you know, be with it. So let's put our stuff aside just for a few moments. So 
So let's be with what is. The temperature in this room, what it feels like to put our feet against the carpet. The dim light that's coming in through our eyelids. Some little sounds that are peppering our experience. Let's just be with what is. Being also with what is inside our body, feelings, sensations, emotions, memories. Just for this moment, letting it be okay, whatever it is. Or at least just letting it be there. Somewhere in all this is the beloved. Somewhere in all this is the lover. Calling us into the truth of ourselves and into our deepest connection Allow yourself for one moment to feel the love of the beloved for you. Just that, to feel the love of the beloved for you. Sitting in that love, however you understand that love to emanate from the heart of the universe. Just take a moment to be filled with love. And now allowing that love to spill beyond the borders of you back to the lover, out into the world, sending it where it is needed. Maybe think of one person or place you wish to send this overflow of love and send it there. Now allowing the love to spill out further to 
until it touches the love everyone else in this room is sending. And you can feel that we're sitting in a matrix and a soup of this radiating love. coming from the heart of what's real, coming from the Shekhinah's heart. Take another minute to sit in the soup of love. And as we are aware of the love that connects all of us, coming back to the reality of this room, the light, the sound, the feeling of the carpet, the sound of one another's breathing, beginning to open our eyes, taking in the reality of each person here. Saying to what is real, you are loved. Holding the truth for one another that we are part of love. And as we open our eyes, you may want to take a moment to just look at our beautiful altar and take some of its loving energy home with you. Yeah, I die, 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 die. 